Another week, another zillion injuries. I'll talk with Nick and Ray about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 9th. It's show number 19 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and notes edition for you. Yes, we were supposed to be launching our regular season Friday full edition this week with Jeff Zimmerman, but circumstances intervened and we've had to put that aside till next week. But we will have all the great stuff this week that you pay for. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including an update on Fernando Tatis, Eliezer Hernandez, Kendall Marte, and more. And Ray Murphy comes by with news from the American League, including Tim Anderson, Trevor Rosenthal, James Paxton, and some interesting six starters. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at two standout starters from Vanderbilt University, Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at San Francisco left-handed reliever Caleb Barragar. And in Extra Innings, I'll have a very special Q&A about the man-on-second-to-start Extra Innings system. It's another Big Friday News and Notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. In the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report and leading off our National League news and analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Lots of news this morning, most of it bad. Yeah, most of it bad indeed. Uh, let's start with an update of the biggest story of this young season, uh, nothing to do with Matt Harvey. The shoulder injury suffered by superstar San Diego shortstop Fernando Tatis was covered earlier when the news first came out based on Jock Thompson's reporting. But now Baseball HQ has an injury update from Matt Cedarholm's great column, The Big Hurt. What has Matt figured out about this injury to Fernando Tatis? The, the injury is a left shoulder subluxion. It reminds us quite a bit of Michael Conforto a few years ago when the force of the swing was enough to tear the rotator cuff. And the subluxion or partial dislocation certainly involves tearing of tissues in the rotator cuff, uh, though like a mild sprain. Uh, the tearing might be minimal. With no surgery, a normal human might need four to six weeks to return to regular activity, up to three months to regain full strength. For an athlete like Tatis, uh, those timelines could be shortened. The uh, MRI showed some minor labrum damage, but at this point, surgery is not indicated. The risk of re-injury is relatively high. An injury like this adds to the shoulder's inherent instability, and that alone can keep him out for a few weeks. Matt reports uh, at the end of each of his analyses of player injuries, uh, 2021 impact and risk of recurrence, and he says the impact is unknown, but the risk of recurrence is relatively high with an estimated return uh, maybe sometime in May. And I think that sounds like a best-case scenario. Now, Nick, uh, let me ask you a tactical question. If you had uh, Fernando Tatis on your roster, would you be thinking of trying to offer him around in the league to somebody who was willing to take a chance? And if you were 
offered that chance, suppose you weren't the owner, but somebody in your league offered him around, would you be interested in acquiring Fernando Tatis, given what we know about the situation right now? I, I, I think I would offer him around if I, if I could at this point, he, um, because this is something that's likely to affect him all year. It's not something that's going to, he's not going to get over. And it'll affect him both in the field and at bat. Uh, and there's a, a, a risk of re-injury, both when he's batting and when he's throwing the ball. So uh, that, that, that causes, I think, more issues. Um, he's made, the issue was clearly bothering him when the season started. He's made some errors early on that he doesn't usually make. He's had some bad throws. Um, so clearly it was bothering him and did not start off great at the plate. So I certainly would offer him around, and I probably would not take him. Would I, I would not give him up cheaply, however. I'd want a $20, $25 ball player back for him. Something else about the injury that concerns me is I wonder what the uh, effect is going to be on his willingness to steal. He's a head-first slider, and if you've had some shoulder problems, I wonder if the team is going to tell him, A, you have to slide feet first, which is something that he's not used to doing, or B, you just have to stop running and sliding at all while we get this tender shoulder kind of healed up. I don't know if I would be a buyer at any kind of price. Like if you came to me in a league, Nick, and said, I want a $25 player back, I'd probably say no, because uh, while the upside is intriguing, I think the downside is horrendous. Yes, I agree with you, Patrick. I think the downside is horrendous. Uh, he, he may produce no stats of use at all this season. Uh, and so I think I would probably not be buying at all. Yeah, and so if you're offering them around, you can expect a lot of people offering back $10 players, I can see, or you know, prospects or draft picks, by however your league rules work. Uh, I don't think the defense is going to be that affected. The uh, subluxation was in the left shoulder, not the throwing shoulder, but... It, you know, the, there have been instances where I think he actually first hurt the shoulder while he was reaching for a ball with his glove. And if, if that's going to be impeded, then that's going to affect his fielding in, in that way. So generally speaking, I'd have to say while the news is sort of marginally good in that they didn't come out and say he's done for the year, much less uh, with career implications, that they said it's possible he could come back early. But the, other than that, I think this news is, has to be generally regarded as pretty poor for anybody who's got Fernando Tatis on a fantasy roster. Yeah, I think very definitely. And since he was likely a first-round pick or, or certainly spent a lot of money on him, this is going to, uh, you're going to be scrambling to, uh, to make that up. Well, as a practical matter, you're not going to make it up. I mean, he's a. I took him in the first round of a draft, and uh, it's a it's a big draft with lots of picks. Uh, it's a best ball, fifty guys on the roster type thing. But that's still it's a huge blow. I mean, there's no way you're going to find anybody on any waiver wire in any kind of league format that's going to replace you know a potential thirty home runs, forty bags. Right. Absolutely. Staying with injuries, Matt Cederholm also covered the right biceps tendonitis that has put Miami right-handed starter Eliezer Hernandez on the injured list. What's the latest there? He was diagnosed with tendonitis after leaving the game with arm soreness. The reports do not indicate which tendon is inflamed. The biceps attaches at both the shoulder and the elbow. But in the game film, you can see the trainer briefly examine the forearm before he leaves. Um, it should be an MLB rule that the player must hold the part of the body that hurts and grimace in pain as he leaves, so us analysts get a better idea of what's really going on, but uh, whatever. If it is indeed the distal elbow end tendon, it's a bad sign, as these things are often precursors to significant injuries such as UCL tears. For now, we'll just take it as tendonitis and project accordingly. 
the 2021 impact is high risk, uh, possibility of more serious injury. This is another one of those situations, isn't it, Nick, where the uncertainty is going to drive uh, anybody who has LAs or Hernandez on their rosters just plain crazy. Uh, Phil Hertz also covered the story in Playing Time today with more of a look at the Playing Time ramifications. What's the story in Miami's rotation? Well, we've adjusted his innings downward until we have more information about the injury. But as Matt noted, the news is likely to be worse rather than better. With Hernandez out, the Marlins are calling up pitchers Jordan Holloway and Nick Neidert. Neidert made four appearances in 2020, compiled a 4.33 XERA, but a strikeout rate of only 12%. He was a second-round pick, got knocked around in the minors in 2019, but a lot of that was in the hitter-friendly Pacific Coast League. Neidert got a start on Thursday against the Mets, went uh, four and a third, gave up just one earned run for a nice-looking 2.08 ERA, but that line is deceiving, considering he gave up uh, three hits and five walks. Meanwhile, Holloway pitched a third of an inning for Miami in 2020, but before that, he had not pitched above high A, where he made 21 starts in 2019, struck out nearly a batter an inning, and had a 4.45 ERA. And both Neidert and Holloway were covered in the daily call-ups report at BaseballHQ.com. This is a fantastic resource, by the way. Anytime a guy gets called up, our scouting team puts in a, a, a report telling us uh, about the prospect and his chances. In this case, Neidert gets a 6A prospect rating, Holloway a slightly less borderline 7D, but this is fringe sort of players, not uh, anybody you should be excited about. Yes, very definitely. So I, I would not be jumping on the waiver wire to get either of these guys. More injury news to a more important player, Arizona's second baseman Kettle Marte was off to a very fast start. He was hitting 462 in a combined 10 RBIs and runs, five apiece. Uh, the Diamondbacks have put Marte on the injured list. He has a hamstring problem. Uh, Phil Hurts again for playing time today. What's going on there? Uh, even though the Diamondbacks characterize the injury as soreness, they did put him on the IL. It's not clear how much time he's expected to miss. Uh, I believe there's an MRI scheduled for Friday morning, and we may know more after that. Uh, Andy Young was recalled and likely serve as a utility player. He went five for 26 for the homer and two doubles in 2020. And unless he works his way into regular playing time, he's not likely to be of any interest to fantasy managers, except for the very deepest of leagues. Yeah, I looked at the situation and then I checked the Baseball HQ team depth charts. It looks like the main playing time beneficiary in the short run might be as Drubal Cabrera. And there's a possibility, I also think, Nick, for tout darling Josh Rojas to get a look playing second base as well. Uh, staying in Arizona, the Diamondbacks, more bad news, sent their closer Joaquim Soria to the injured list. He's got a strained left calf. Uh, this news has created more pandemonium in what was already a completely unsettled bullpen in Arizona. Phil Hertz covers the story for playing time today. What's the skinny there? Yeah, it's, as we, we've talked about the unsettled playing time situation before in Arizona, the closer situation, and now with Soria out for an undetermined length of time, it increases the chances that Chris Davinsky and Kevin Ginkle or Stefan Crichton will grab the closer job. Uh, of the three, Davinsky has historically had the best skills, got the save in the Diamondbacks' April 4th victory. Uh, but managers need to note that Davinsky has not had much success the last couple of years, uh, had some elbow issues in 2020. Uh, and uh, as of this morning, he had been, been uh, given a personal leave, uh, given leave for a personal issue. So uh, hard to tell exactly what's going on there or how much time he may be out. Uh, as for Peacock, According to BaseballHQ.com, he's not among the Diamondbacks' top 15 prospects. He did have a 2.97 ERA over 115 innings 
at AA in 2019. Uh, you can find more information on Peacock in that wonderful daily call-ups column. I checked it out, Nick. Uh, the report gives him a little bit to strut about, saying his profile shows some signs of sneaky value. Okay, it's not the greatest compliment you can pay a guy, I guess, to call him sneaky, but uh, he has a three-pitch mix, a pretty good sinking fastball, great ground ball profile, I think, is the thing they like the most about him, almost 70% ground balls in 2019, a change-up that's a kind of a hit-or-miss proposition, not really deceptive enough, and an average slider that has that really high spin rate you like, but not the command that you want. So mm, I don't know about this Matt Peacock guy. Of course, if he finds his way into that closer role, all of a sudden he's valuable. Never mind the skills. A lot of Absolutely. that has to do with the roles, right? Yeah. Another young yeah. star with bad news, Nick in Pittsburgh. The Pirates sent third baseman Kebrian Hayes to the IL. He has some wrist inflammation. Uh, Matt Cederholm reported in the Big Hurt that he made an awkward swing and got the knob of the bat caught on his hand. Luckily, they said it's not broken and Hayes appeared to be pointing to the tendon that connects to the back of his left ring finger. Uh, Rick Green covers Pittsburgh for playing time today. What are the upshots in Pittsburgh? Well, at this point, uh, Hayes is expected to miss some time, but it's not clear how much. As for who will be at the hot corner, Hayes was replaced by Eric Gonzalez after his injury on Saturday, and Philip Evans started at third base on Sunday. Uh, look for those two to get most of the playing time. Uh, Evans is actually kind of interesting. Evans had an interesting 39 at bat stint, in the majors in 2020 before getting injured. He had 359 with a home run and nine RBIs. Now, it's only 39 at-bats, but he might make a very interesting peculiar pickup. Uh, I believe it was Wednesday night he had cleanup for the Pirates. So if he's in that part of the lineup, and was also playing in the outfield, by the way, so in that part of the lineup, he could uh, could be fairly valuable. Uh, Wilmer Defoe has already had some playing time projected. He'll be a backup for Pittsburgh. Uh, doesn't warrant much consideration. Another possibility is Todd Frazier, uh, but since he's at the alternate site, he likely wouldn't join, be ready to join the team until uh, uh, probably the end of this week, uh, early next week. I was going to say the fact that uh, guys like Evans are, are hitting cleanup for Pittsburgh says a lot about Pittsburgh's lineup, doesn't it? It, it does indeed, doesn't it? <laughs> Matt Cedarholm estimated that if this is a sprain of the tendon, uh, Hayes could be expected to miss, what, three to six weeks or so. That gets him back in the lineup in late April or early May, minimal issues when he returns. So there is that little bit of upside on this otherwise downside story. Uh, uh, finally, Nick, uh, Orlando Arcia. How about this? An early season real trade involving real players. Orlando Arcia goes to the Atlanta Braves uh, and his playing time, Phil Hertz reports, takes a giant hit. It does take a giant hit. Atlanta turned around and optioned Arcia to their alternate training camp. Uh, Arcia had started the season one for 11, had produced his best offensive output during 2020, over 173 at-bats in 2020, he had a 269 expected batting average, uh, 110 expected power index, 103 speed. Likely to return at some point, but barring injury, Roll is likely to be a utility player. We had uh, dropped his playing time by 55% as a result of the trade. Who's the big playing time winner in Milwaukee with Arcia out of the picture? It's the guy we talked about last week, Luis Urias. Uh, Luis Urias has yet to hit at the major league level as he did in the minor leagues. A consistent high contact, high batting average hitter in the minors. Uh, he hasn't been able to make consistent contact in the majors. Uh, displayed subpar MLB batting skills across three seasons, uh, though he has fewer than 200 major league bats. So possibility that he could eventually turn things around, but... At this point, uh, doesn't have any power, uh, doesn't have any hard contact ability, 
seems uh, pretty much unlikely to provide uh, any offense in 2021. Well, not that great of news after all, I guess. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. Maybe we can talk about some good news next week if there is any. And in the meantime, take care, and I'll talk to you again uh, in seven days' time. Well, let's hope for some good news in the National League. It would, it would certainly be a change from this week's downer. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a Baseball HQ pitching analyst. Now let's turn to the American League and co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Thanks, PD. Happy uh, beginning of the second week of the season, right? How are your teams doing so far? I know it's early, but... I, I think the biggest event of the week was... Uh, Counting up how many places I had Fernando Tatis and then getting my heart to start beating again, right? <laughs> yes, I have him in in one draft, the Raz Slam draft, and uh, you know the the impact isn't quite so serious there because you're carrying a 50 man roster and uh, it's a draft and hold type of thing, uh, best ball scoring. So of course, best ball scoring takes a blow when you don't have Fernando Tatis in there to be one of the best ball guys. But it's not like uh, having him in a National League only where it pretty much sinks your in- entire season. So I guess you take your good news where you can get it. Uh, speaking of shortstops, Ray, at the start of draft season, one of the truisms was that shortstop might be the deepest position for fantasy purposes, and yet we saw Fernando Tatis go down, and now we get the news that Chicago White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson placed on the 10-day IL with a strained left hamstring earlier this week. Uh, the White Sox recalled infielder Danny Mendick from the alternate training site. Uh, Rick Green covers the White Sox for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, what happens on the south side with Tim Anderson out? Yeah, it's not quite the earth-shattering news that uh, Tatis was, but this is still fairly bad news for Tim Anderson owners. Uh, as you said, shortstop is a deep spot, but Anderson kind of provided a very specific skill set there. I ended up targeting him a bunch in the spring in that uh, late third, fourth round in mixed drafts because he was a nice, uh, a nice speed force there, and obviously his stolen base outlook even when he comes back and we're not sure how long he's going to be out but uh you've got to be a little bit worried about the stolen base outlook for the longer term given that this is a hamstring injury here he was only off to a three for 21 start so we hadn't seen him even have the opportunity to run even when he had two good hamstrings but you know let's not forget besides his speed i mean this this is uh you know he had a He's had a 329 batting average since the start of 2019. I mean, this is a sort of an, an elite batting average and speed contributor that, uh, you know, is now significantly downgraded in the move to Danny Mendick or Larry Garcia or whoever's going to fill in a shortstop here. And Anderson also a decent power guy, 512 slugging percentage. And interestingly enough, although he doesn't draw a lot of walks, he does maintain a 354 on base percentage from 2019 till this year, uh, just almost entirely on the strength of the batting average, which is one way of going about it. Uh, a lot of times those uh, batting average guys who don't walk uh, uh, are contributors indirectly in that way. Uh, Mendick replaced Anderson in the lineup. Uh, I guess you're saying, eh, not so much. Yeah, certainly a big downgrade. Not much to get excited about from a fantasy perspective, even in terms, even if you're thinking in terms of a hopefully short-term fill-in here. Uh, but you know, we're talking about a career 260 batting average with a sub 300 OBP and about a 400 slug in just 146 career major league at bats. Uh, but across you know nearly 2,000 at bats in the minor leagues, he's got. 48 homers and 67 stolen bases, which tells you that he's just not going to be a significant contributor in either area. So he's pretty much just keeping the chair warm here. And you'll probably see some Larry Garcia and shortstop too, who can 
you know, it has sort of the same power limitations, might give you a couple of bags and, you know, at least puts the ball in play. And I'm sure these guys are going to be batting ninth and just trying to hold down a position defensively for as long as Anderson's out. I seem to remember Leary Garcia having a bit of a fantasy impact a couple of years ago, but I might be uh, deluded. Yeah, he had a he had a good year in I think it was nineteen actually when he sort of moved around to a bunch of different positions, got a whole heck of a lot of playing time, and scored a pile of runs because he's a decent not a decent batting average on base guy and spent a fair amount of time at the top of that lineup. I mean, he could do that for uh, you know for for a short stretch here, but he's not going to uh, he's no Tim Anderson. We'll leave it at that. Moving on, uh, let's talk about the uh, Oakland Athletics, which is turning into a, a mash unit uh, of the worst sort of kind. Uh, Chad Pinder, uh, some people had some expectations that he might find his way into playing time, um, but that didn't come to pass mostly because of the sudden reincarnation of Jed Lowry. But uh, Pinder, in any case, goes to the 10-day injured list. He, uh, he's got a sprained left knee. The uh, Athletics recalled utility player Seth Brown, kind of an infield, outfield type of guy. Uh, what happens in the Oakland offense with Pinder on the shelf? Not that it's the biggest thing in the world. Yeah, boy, if I were taking bets on which one was only going to last five games, Jed Lowry or Chad Pinder, I, I, I kind of would have lost my house on this one. Uh, <laughs> the idea that Jed Lowry is staying healthy and outlasting Chad Pinder is, uh, hey, you know, anything can happen in baseball, I guess. Uh, we don't know how long Pinder's going to be out. Uh, he had started three of the first four games for the A's. You know, him and Lowry were kind of tag teaming second base and DH. Uh, but we we were not projecting him to be a full timer already, so he didn't lose a lot of playing time here. As far as Seth Brown, as you said, he's probably going to be moving around infield, outfield. Uh, he might even pick up some of the DH at bats with Lowry now putting on his glove and moving out to second base. Uh, Brown comes with good power. I mean, we got to take PCL numbers with a grain of salt, but he did hit 37 home runs in Las Vegas in 2019. And he's only got 80 career major league at bats, but he's put up a slightly above average 107 power index. So there's some, there's some weight and power here. If the, uh, if the opportunity turns out to be an extended one or if he hits his way into the lineup, but you know, the plate skills are iffy. It's going to be a low batting average profile with, uh, with a bunch of strikeouts. It's another one of these. You know, he'll strike out a bunch, but when he gets, but he'll get a hold of one every now and then kind of profile. The playing time today analysis also mentioned increased playing time for Stephen Piscotty, Kaya, Tom, and Tony Kemp. I think we know what Kemp and Piscotty bring to the table, but this Kaya, Tom, he was kind of an intriguing guy pre-draft season, and then during the draft kind of faded from view. Yeah, he's one of those guys that, um, you know, hit my radar kind of in mid-March just because he, uh, you know, he did not have a projection in our system, and then we had to add one. Uh, you know, he was a Rule 5 guy that ended up sticking with Oakland. I, you know, as far as his initial call-up, you know, we, have, we had him rated as a 7D prospect in our prospect rating scale. He's a smaller guy. He's 5'9", 185 pounds, but, you know, he hit 310 in the, with a 400-plus on-base percentage in the spring, and he's a career 270 minor league hitter. So... And he's got AAA experience, so he didn't completely come out of nowhere. Uh, and, you know, if, there, if there's an opportunity here, as you said, he's the unknown compared to the other guys on this list. We sort of know both the strengths and the limitations of Seth Brown and Piscotti and these guys. So uh, Tony Kemp as well, for sure. So maybe maybe Tom emerges as uh, 
you know, maybe, maybe, maybe curtain number three is better than the uh, sort of known alternatives here. This is, I think, going to be a theme we'll keep, keep coming back to a little bit this year with the, um, you know, with the lack of a minor league season in 2020 and player, you know, we have to be open to the idea that players have sort of reinvented themselves offline or at the alternate sites or whatever and are what we know about minor leaguers from a track record perspective. We have to uh, take with some grains of salt and be open to the idea that, you know, that our relatively ancient history of what they did in 2018 and 19 may not be their baseline anymore. Yeah, I listened to the uh, athletics game the other night. They were talking about Kaya Tom, uh, quite a fire plug sort of build, a real stocky, mm-hmm. low to the ground type of guy, which doesn't suggest a lot of speed, but does sort of suggest that there might be some power there. A uh, little trivia for you. Uh, Tom's from Hawaii. Guess who his favorite major league player was growing up? Um, let's see, from the right age, uh, Benny Ibaiani. Shane Victorino is apparently from Hawaii. Oh, uh, that's, well. that's a good one too, sure. He's probably younger than I think he is. That's why. (laughs) Let's stay in that Oakland mash unit, Ray. They spent a lot of money in the offseason on Trevor Rosenthal to be their closer, but he was on the shelf virtually right from the start and recently went to see a specialist in thoracic outlet syndrome surgery. That's the one where blood supply to the shoulder is cut off and the uh, doctors sometimes need to shave down or even remove the top rib on that side. There are other complications. Playing time... Today, coverage by Rod Trusdell quoted manager Bob Melvin as not being upbeat about the results of that surgeon's visit. He said, surgery is on the table, and I don't know that he was trying to be funny, putting the guy on an operating table, but what do we know now about Trevor Rosenthal's injury situation? It seemed like it was a uh, fait accompli, and sure enough, when you go to the doctor who specializes in thoracic outlet surgery, the predictable outcome is, he says, yes, you need thoracic outlet surgery, and that's what happened. You need the surgery. I need a new swimming pool. So let's go. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, He did indeed have surgery on Thursday with uh, Dr. Greg Pearl, the aforementioned specialist. Uh, So as far as timetable for post-surgery return, there's a checkup visit scheduled in eight weeks or so, but the usual recovery back to pitching is you know, nets out to be three to four months. So we're going to be, you know, minimum into the second half, if not further than that, before we see Rosenthal again. Rod Trusdell in his playing time today coverage also noted that it has been hard to say who will get Rosenthal's save opportunities because well, so far they haven't had any save opportunities. Uh, through Thursday's night games, they were 1-7 and seven and their lone win was an extra innings at home, so no save there. Uh, Rod reported on Friday morning there has been at least a little added clarity though. Initially, it looked like Jake Deepman might be the guy. He was, uh, you know, sort of our preseason favorite for the role before they signed Rosenthal and Sergio Romo. But then those guys supplanted him. But now, rather than go back to Deepman, it looks like Bob Melvin is leaning toward Lou Trevino. And there's some good reason for that. Trevino was really, really good in 2018. He paired with Blake Trinan, who was also otherworldly in the closer role. But Trevino was way above mortal status himself as the setup man. Those guys worked really, really well together in 2018. Trinan lost some ground with his skills in 2019, but Trevino lost ground at the same time, so he sort of became more mortal too. But very early so far in 21 here, Trevino looks like things are trending in a positive direction. He's got his strikeout rate in just six innings, but it's back up over a batter an inning. His velocity is still sitting in, you know, 
the 95 and a half, 96 range. He also seems to have picked up a ground ball tilt in, you know, a microscopic sa- sample size. So, uh, you know, th- there are the makings here of a, of a worthwhile closer. So it makes some sense that Melvin would say that we're going to go with Trevino in the ninth and Deepman is going to sort of lead the setup crew in front of him. And we should make it clear, he didn't actually say that. Rod reported that what he actually said was that Diekman would be better suited in his current setup role. So it's not like he said, my closer's Lou Trevino and let's go and get him, boys. He, he basically said it's Trevino because it's not Diekman. And I think there's a, a bit of a difference there, and I'm giving the edge to uh, Trevino as well. I imagine there'll be a lot of fab spending on him this weekend. Uh, I notice he's only given up one hit so far in his, uh, in his minimal number of innings, but the one hit was a home run, and and that indicates something that also is a bit of a blemish on Trevino's overall skill set. Yeah, he's. I mean, you know, balls have been flying out of ballparks for year years, right? And he's not immune to that. He's uh, all three of the last years, 2018, 2019, 2020. His uh, home run per nine has been a little over uh, 1.0. So you know, there's a bit of a bugaboo there, and that's not a great number considering he pitches in Oakland Coliseum either. Right. Uh, so, so that's, uh, yeah, it's going to be somewhat concerning. He's not, you know, if he does get the role, like you say, we're sort of doing process of elimination here, but if he does get the role, you know, he could be effective there, but he's by no means, uh, set up and forget him lights out sort of guy either. And from the point of view of home runs, any ground ball tilt increase would be a real benefit because if he can push that home run rate down below one, even to something like 0.7 or 0.8 per nine uh, innings, that would be a, a big benefit in keeping his ERA down, probably preserving his role. If he starts giving up fly balls again, maybe not so much. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's you know he, he's he if there's an adjustment being made to keep the ball down and on the ground, the good news is that you know he's actually addressing a legitimate problem. Uh, but you know on the other hand, you know just looking at his game log, like you said, he's given up one hit and it's a home run. So, uh, but he's also also you know we're talking about microscopic samples here. He's given up seven ground balls, two line drives, and three fly balls, and one of the three fly balls landed on the other side of the fence. So you know we shouldn't exactly call the uh, call the the home run bugaboo solved yet either no we don't know is what it boils down to but uh just the fact that maybe he's doing something or is cognizant of the need to generate more ground balls uh, i haven't checked his pitch mix or anything like that to see if he's looking more at breaking pitches and sinkers and stuff but if he can control that that fly ball tilt and move it more towards ground balls i think it's a general plus and it's something that unfortunately we can't look at for a long enough time to get a firm understanding of what's going on there because the fab bidding is going to be this weekend and somebody's going to have Lou Trevino on their roster and that person and all the rest of us are going to find out sometime later whether the home run problem is still a problem. That's right. I'm going to have to go check offline and check on the pitch pitch mix, but I mean, he's thrown a total of... I'm counting, doing math in my head, which is always dangerous, but it looks like he's thrown about 85 pitches so far this year. And then when now when you break that down between lefties and righties, he's faced 14 righties and six lefties. So we're going to have to figure out within those microscopic samples, like, you know, if he's changed his pitch mix or has a you know, different break on his slider or what have you, you know, we're, we're really going to have to squint to see the uh, results. And like you say, you know, unless he happens to throw a couple hundred more pitches for us this weekend, we're going to have to make our bids based on incomplete information. Very incomplete information, that's right. Uh, so is there anybody else in the saves mix beyond Diekman if uh, Trevino doesn't get the job done or if they decide to go committee? It's going to be pretty thin for a little while. Uh, you know, there's Sergio Romo who you know was so- another offseason acquisition who 
people thought might work in here, but he's been very clearly been getting used earlier in the sixth or seventh inning. So there's not, um, you know, there's not a lot of optimism there. Although, you know, if Trevino blows up, there are only so many other places you can turn. After that, J.B. Wendelkin seems like he's been getting used in fairly low leverage spots early. There's Yusmera Petit, who you know is sort of a more of a multi-inning guy, so you wouldn't think he translates to the ninth that easily. A.J. Puck might have been interesting if he transitioned from getting stretched out as a starter to getting into the bullpen. He's certainly got electric stuff, but now he's on the DL, too. So... It, you know, like we said, Melvin didn't really declare Trevino the closer, but you know, there it's pretty clear it's not anybody else, especially when he ruled out Deekman. So I, I think for at least the next couple of weeks, we're looking at Trevino. It's Trevino's job to win or lose. I was checking the Baseball HQ team depth charts, and Trevino is now at 40% of the saves available. But, boy, there's a lot of guys on our depth chart that's, that could be in line for saves, including Pettit, uh, J.B. Wendell, Ken, uh, Deekman you mentioned, Romo you mentioned, Adam Kalarik, and Rosenthal. When he comes back, if it's presumably sometime around the All-Star break, if everything goes well, maybe he fits into the mix. This could be a, a real mishmash. Yeah, if you're betting on somebody in this bullpen to whether or not anybody will get to 20 saves this year, you might very well just take nobody. Uh, Oakland put two other pitchers on the 10-day IL. Uh, right-hander Burt Smith has a strained right groin, and left-hander Raymond Goodwan has a sprained left thumb. Uh, the team recalled right-hander Jordan Weems, and that name seems to ring a bell for me. Yeah, he's a little bit interesting or you know, caught our eyes uh, a couple of years ago. He's a converted catcher uh, who went out to the mound as his, I guess, catching career was not taking off and uh, just started throwing BBs out there. Um, You might remember the profile because a guy named uh, Kenley Jansen, I'm pretty sure, got to the closer role by that same path. Uh, That's not to say Weems is the next Kenley Jansen. He's got some issues in his his, skill set on the mound, but he does sport an impressive mid-90s fastball. And uh, 31% strikeout rate last year, which is nothing to sneeze at for sure. Uh, but, you know, as far as the downsides, uh, you know, as you might expect, uh, doesn't always have the best idea where the ball is going. Uh, he walked four and a half guys per nine last year for a 12% BB rate. That leaves his K minus BB at 19% last year in the small sample, which is in the shaky range. Uh, and obviously, you know, so also somewhat telling that until Smith got hurt. Weems did not make the team coming out of camp, which means he comes onto the roster as the 13th pitcher or whatever it is. So if there's, and, uh, you know, on the one hand, he's got a bunch of ground to make up if he wants to work his way into high leverage work. On the other hand, we just talked about what a mess the top end of the of this particular bullpen is. So if he comes up and gets people out, he could move up in in the pecking order rather quickly. So you kind of got to watch everybody in this bullpen for the moment, and he goes on the list. Uh, you mentioned Kenley Jansen having transitioned from being a catcher to being a closer. Another name that popped into my head, and maybe this is just showing my age, but Troy Percival of the Angels was a pretty effective closer with a cannon arm that he couldn't hit. It was one of the reasons that he uh, transitioned to the mound and was pretty effective. Oh, that's a good one. I didn't, re- I, I didn't recall that one. Ray, fantasy managers who had Seattle left-hander James Paxton on their rosters got some bad news on Friday morning. 
Yeah, so th- this was a bit of a roller coaster for a couple of days or even longer if you go back to sort of the way Paxton played out this spring. You know, there was obviously a lot of, you know, skepticism and concern given his sort of longer-term injury track record. But then he got to spring training, and when he finally got on a mound for the Mariners, the velocity was back, and it looked like he was really on track for to, to at least start the season healthy. I, I didn't draft him anywhere, but I did deploy him in a uh, – in the Town Wars DFS contest on Tuesday night thinking, well, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't have any confidence that he was going to be healthy for a full season, but Hey, he's actually starting tonight. I can at least depend on him to be healthy here. Uh, nope. <laughs> he lasted <laughs> seven outs or something like that. Wasn't it? That yeah, was all I got it. out of him. Um, <laughs> and he broke, but then, you know, the roller coaster continued, you know, he certainly, you know, looked like he immediately knew something was wrong and I couldn't tell watching it, whether, it was more of an oblique kind of thing or an elbow kind of thing. He was just sort of holding his arm close to his body, and you couldn't tell which one was the problem. But then the next morning, the guidance was sort of, they didn't think it was a big deal. It was just a minor strain, and you know they were going to certainly shut him down, but it might not have been a disaster. But then finally, you know, here on Friday morning, they say, oh, no, Tommy John. So he's out for the year, and... Uh, the the, uh, the the flash in the pan of his promising March velocity gains goes uh, poof up, poof up in smoke as it were. Probably a good chunk of the year after uh, as well, uh, because the usual recovery time is eighteen months. So if you take this the rest of this year and take it out another full year, that's pretty much it. Uh, I wonder if James Paxton's just done forever. Yeah, boy, it's hard to take the, the multi-year track record and uh, of his health and you know, project anything uh, resembling any length of time going forward for a healthy a, a healthy return on the other side of this. Like you say, you're probably into the you know the second half of 2022 before he's even ready to come back and the, you know, the rehab involved in that, and then how old he's going to be in 2023. And just probably at that point, fishing for another non-roster invite or having to audition with, with, for a uh, for a job based on side sessions, you know, almost two years from now. That's a that's an awfully long haul. And as you said, he's not getting any younger. He'll be in his early thirties with a history of injury and rehab and injury and rehab. And I, I'm not a professional athlete and I don't understand the grasp that the game sometimes keeps on these guys. Remember in ball four, Jim Bouton wrapped it up by saying, you go through your career thinking you're holding onto a baseball and it turns out it was the other way around. And maybe that's the case for James Paxton. He'll think, you know, I still feel young. I think with the surgery, maybe I'll be stronger, which is something that a lot of people do believe that the, you come out of the surgery better than you were going in. Who knows with James Paxton, but one thing we do know for sure, Ray, is he's done for this year. That's right. These are all valid questions that we won't be able to to answer for quite some time yet. Chris Flexen was a guy that was getting some interest before draft season started and during draft season, and the uh, Mariners also recalled uh, right-hander LJ Newsom from the alternate training site, so there's a couple of names who could get Paxton starts. Do we like either of these guys? Newsom, not so much. Uh, he's probably up to be the swing man. We were, were sort of expecting him to sort of ride the AAA shuttle all year. So another case where we didn't need to make a playing time adjustment here. He just doesn't miss enough bats to be interesting. He's got a 5.2 K per nine or, you know, that's 13% in our uh, batter's faced denominator metrics. But either way, those numbers are very poor. And, uh, you know, cast a low ceiling. Flexen is interesting, just in another example of 
you know, what we were talking about earlier with guys who have reinvented themselves a little bit. When he was with the Mets a couple of years ago, last seen riding the AAA shuttle there, getting knocked around consistently in the majors. But he went overseas last year, and I read a profile of him uh, when I was uh, researching him in late March. And, you know, there were some interesting things there, both from he – did, he did two things, as I recall, that sort of bring him back to relevance or – make him a different guy than the one who was getting uh, tattooed with the Mets a couple of years ago. Uh, first of all, he lost a lot of weight and sort of, I guess, got a little more serious about the game and his conditioning. He went from 250 pounds to 215, as I recall. And he also picked up, um, he also picked up a spike curveball, a 12 to six curveball. So there's this pitch mix changes, there's body type changes, which is enough to say that, you know, that's not to say he's going to be great, but it's enough for me to at least discount the, very poor prior track record that he has. Yeah, I was looking at his prior track record and I was checking the decimals uh, from 2017 to 19, 202, 316, 205. I thought to myself, this guy might be a catch. And then I realized I was looking at the whip column and not the ERA column. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. <laughs> and the ERA is uh, 788, 1279, and 659. But that 1279 year had an expected ERA of only 971, so wasn't uh, wasn't all bad. So unlucky, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could fix that strand rate, anything's possible. Staying in Seattle, uh, outfielder Jake Fraley also left a game with a hamstring injury. They recalled uh, outfielder Braden Bishop. Anything of fantasy interest here? Not much. Fraley was kind of working as the stand-in while they waited for Kyle Lewis to come back. And Fraley, uh, we may have talked about previously, had some interesting skills. And I was sort of interested in whether he would sort of stake out a three- or four-week run here before Lewis came back. Uh, But now the injury sort of cut short that opportunity. Bishop will probably stand in for maybe even as little as a couple of days until Lewis gets back. So uh, we don't we don't expect Bishop or his career 660 OPS to see much playing time beyond maybe this weekend. In some news that might be even bigger than Braden Bishop, in Toronto, the Jays made an offseason splash by signing free agent outfielder George Springer to a big, long contract. He started the season on the IL. He had some issues with his oblique, and there was plenty of optimism in Toronto circles that Springer would be activated on Thursday of this week. During his ramp up to returning, however, he got dealt a new and different injury blow. Uh, Phil Hertz lounging on a beach in Hawaii covers Toronto for playing time today. Uh, what's going on with George Springer in the big smoke? Yeah, so like you said, he's been coming back from an oblique. And if you remember initially, he wasn't even convinced he was going to miss opening day. And the Jays did the, uh, you know, what you would expect them to do, the cautious thing with their new $150 million outfielder and said, you know, take an extra week and make sure that that outbreak is okay and doesn't bother you for the entire season. And all, as you said, all indications were he was going to get a, get a activated in the middle of, middle of this week or so. But then, you know, he was apparently in his ne- next to last day of workouts before getting activated. You know, he felt a quad problem running the bases on Tuesday. Now he wasn't activated. He's delayed. We don't know how long he's getting an MRI on the quad. So we're going to wait and see what that says. But boy, you got to think that this costs him minimum another week, if not more. So we reduced his playing time projection again. Uh, We'll jack that back up on a percentage basis when he actually does get back in the lineup. But, you know, this is enough for us to, you know, to debit that playing time again. 
I, if there's good news here, it's good news for you know the guys who have been filling in for him so far because they get a little bit more of an opportunity. Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel, Randall Grichuk, a pretty set uh, outfield for Toronto the last couple of games, actually pretty much since the start of the season, and that got noted in playing time today when uh, Springer first got covered. Uh, might also give a bit of breathing room, Ray, for Rowdy Telez, who has opened the season 0 for 15, and he would have a 0-0-0 average and on-base percentage, except some pitcher for some reason hit him, which seems like a really poor move considering he seems to be not very effective. Uh, let's move on to Baltimore. Outfielder Austin Hayes got a little bit of helium in the draft season, placed on the 10-day IL with a hamstring problem. Hayes was also off to a slow start with 200 batting average, no walks. Uh, Phil Hurts for playing time today on the Baltimore beat. How important is this news from the fantasy angle? Yeah, Hayes was off to a slow start, but coming off a 2020 season in which he hit uh, 279, I believe, even though the ex- expected batting average of 236 didn't really support that. And he, with a handful of home runs and 120 at-bats, we're going to have to wait and see uh, some follow-up reports to see how severe the hamstring injury is. Uh, but in the meantime, the beneficiaries seem to be Cedric Mullins and Ryan Mount- Mountcastle picking up the uh, the extra outfield at-bats. Uh, Mullins, in particular, is off to a strong start. Uh, you know, completely lit up the Red Sox in the uh, the opening weekend series. So uh, he will probably continue to be the fixture in center field while Hayes is out for however short or long that may be. Mountcastle, uh, not so much. Uh, he so far has uh, three RBIs, a couple of hits in, uh, I think he's four for 24. I have him on a couple of rosters, so I kind of keep track, but that's, if my math is correct, is about a 166 batting average, and that's really not getting the job done too much. He's drawing some walks, but that's about it. Uh, Baltimore also activated right-hander Sean Armstrong from the 10-day IL. Uh, where does Armstrong fit into a, so far, relatively unimpressive Baltimore pitching staff? This is maybe one to watch just because of the dearth of other decent quality options, especially in that bullpen. Armstrong was pretty good in a tiny 15-inning sample in 2020. Uh, 376 expected ERA, struck out 25% of the batters he faced. The K-minus BB of 20%, which is you know, perfectly respectable for a reliever. That all bets out to a BPV of 126. And a triple-digit BPV in this bullpen is worth noting. I, it's, you know, I've seen a lot of Twitter chatter, and I watched a bit of, uh, you know, closer du jour, 36-year-old Cesar Valdez and his dead fish 78-mile-an-hour changeup last weekend. And he certainly baffled the Red Sox a couple of times, but I'm not sure how throwing a 78-mile-an-hour changeup uh, you know, roughly 78% of the time is going to last on a long-term perspective as the closer. So, uh, it, you know, we thought Tanner Scott was going to be the next man up, but if Armstrong comes back here and is effective before, you know, we, we've got some time yet before Hunter Harvey returns. So I think he's a, Armstrong at least immediately becomes the number three option in this bullpen. And I think we've got question marks about number one and number two. So he at least bears watching. I heard uh, somebody say on the radio, I was listening to a ball game, and they were talking about Valdez and his uh, velocity, and you mentioned the 78-mile-an-hour changeup, and somebody said, you know, that 78-mile-an-hour changeup makes his 84-mile-an-hour fastball look like it's maybe 86, 87, and everybody had a good uh, laugh. Yeah, not a lot of superior skills going on there, we'll say. Uh, Our starting pitcher columnist, uh, Stephen Nickrand, had a recent column looking at sixth starters, 
this was interesting because six starters have a way of becoming fifth and fourth and third starters as the injuries pile up and as they do well in the other role. There were some interesting names here. Uh, which ones jumped out at you? Yeah, there were a lot of interesting names here, and you know, perhaps even more so than usual. You know, this is an early season annual tradition for Stephen to look at the you know, the guys who didn't quite make the rotation, but we expect are going to get there at some point. And it's it's particularly interesting, I think, this year because so many fourth and fifth starters are either jobs in flux or given openers and piggybacks and all of the other things we've talked about so many times already, fourth and fifth starters sometimes aren't even really starters. So in some cases, these guys are the second men in or the guys working in middle relief who have a great shot at wins. Uh, It's a great, it's a great list to work from. Um, Randy Dobnak was the first one that caught my eye. Uh, You know, he made some news the last week of spring training for signing a, uh, a big contract with the twins, which just shows that they value him as a member of their staff going forward. Uh, I watched him, one day this week, uh, you know, he, he, he did what you want to see from one of these guys. He came in in a blowout when after Matt Shoemaker threw six innings on Monday in a like fifteen to one game, and he was all teed up for the uh, for the three inning save, which is the uh, you know the holy grail of the uh, the mop up reliever, right? The uh, yeah. the cheap three, the cheap three inning save. Um, <laughs> yeah. un- 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 I know where un- this is going. <laughs> he happened to give up a uh, a grand slam home run after. Uh, in the ninth inning as he uh, pretty clearly ran out of uh, gas there on like pitch 48 or 50 or whatever it was. So the, uh, the stat line actually looked pretty bad, but his first, uh, his first 40 pitches in that outing were pretty good. And he could make a good work. He's a great example of somebody who could make a good living in that role this year with, uh, you know, we don't know how long Shoemaker's going to be healthy. We got to think the twins are going to try to take good care of him and Jay Happ. And there could be a lot of, you know, middle of the game, three innings, vulture the win, or do what he did on Monday and come in and, uh, you know, soak up three innings for the save and let the rest of the bullpen rest. Hopefully he won't give up a grand slam every time he comes into the game. I was going to say, yeah. That's going to not work too well. (laughs) A certain caveat there. (laughs) Oh, good. I got a save and a 15 ERA to go with it. Uh, Pass. (laughs) Saves aren't worth that much. Who else? You know, A.J. Puck is another one we did not talk about in the Oakland bullpen earlier, but, uh, you know, he's going to be, his role was, a little questionable after he had been farmed out, but remains to be seen what, how they decide to use him and whether his usage pattern gets affected by the Rosenthal injury and the bullpen turmoil. He could work into a bullpen role there for a, everything from a multi-inning fireman role to uh, potentially a back-end piece to a starter if they decide that uh, you know, one of the other rotation candidates needs to be in the bullpen now that all those dominoes are moving. Um, uh, yet another one on his on Stevens' list was uh, Garrett Whitlock, who turned a lot of heads in uh, spring training here in Boston. A Rule Five pick from the Yankees, who's uh, coming back from Tommy John surgery. This is another guy who, because he had Tommy John surgery in 2019 and then no minors in 2020, we have haven't seen a pitch in you know several years now. But uh, you know some intriguing steals there. He was completely dominant in spring training and made the team with uh, like 16 strikeouts and one walk or something like that. And then, uh, you know, got into another one of these uh, soak up the innings in the blowout role uh, last weekend as the Orioles were hammering the Red Sox and hung up, I think it was a three and a third inning 5K outing. And, you know, if they're going to keep him kind of stretched out like that to throw two, three innings at a time, that's really just going to um, you know, create the opportunity for some of those uh, – 
some of those wins a middle relief because there will be no shortage of short outings from Red Sox starting pitching. I was looking at the uh, Red Sox depth chart after I read Stevens' column, and Whitlock's not actually their sixth starter. He's kind of more like their eighth starter. And the names ahead of him include Chris Sale, of course, uh, who isn't in the lineup until he comes back from his uh, Tommy John. But uh, I also noticed Tanner Houck and Matt Andres ahead of Whitlock uh, as a Boston guy. Uh, any interest in those guys? Yeah, Houck, I think they're playing the long game with. Uh, you know, he's been qu- He was quite good last September as a starter, he got an opening weekend start uh, because of Eduardo Rodriguez not being ready to start the season. But then they moved him to the bullpen after the one start, and they've been pretty clear that he's going to the alternate site because he they have some things they want him to work on, even though he's been pretty effective in the majors. They think that uh, you know with a little bit of polish and managing his innings, he can be even better. He will be back later in the season in the rotation. But Andreessen and Andreessen uh, Whitlock, excuse me, I think are really both going to be not so much starters, but three-inning relievers. Andres took the same thing that Whitlock did with a you know, sort of three-inning relief appearance the other night, and I think that's going to be more their role. But you can easily imagine a scenario where, as a couple of these starters go down, that that turns into a, between the two of them, they could be a tandem sort of situation where you know, either one of them works as an opener or maybe both of them work in between the two of them, they can soak up, you know, seven innings a night. So, uh, you know, remains to be seen how exactly, you know, what exactly the needs are in the rotation. But I would sort of think of them as, you know, the six and a half and seven and a half starters, I guess is probably the way to put it. Let's close with some facts and flukes coverage, Ray, uh, BaseballHQ.com, performance validation column by our analysts, looking at individual players and assessing whether how they've done and how they're doing coincides with the skills that they've been displaying. Uh, Bob Berger looked at five American leaguers, including a guy who had some draft helium this year as well, a relief pitcher Nick Whitgren in Cleveland. This all had to do with whether there's a possibility that James Karinczak might not be all that despite his massive strikeout totals. So let's continue that debate. Whitgren versus Karinczak versus who? Yeah, Whitgren, Karinczak, and Emmanuel Clase are kind of the three guys in that bullpen right now. We've all been trying to figure out what order they were going to fall into. And it's, you know, we can sit here and, talk, and, and debate their relative merits, but it's one of those situations where, we, where what we really need to do is figure out what Tito Francona thought of their relative merits. And you know, kind of like you were talking about with Oakland earlier, it took a really long time for us to get a look at how Francona was going to deploy these guys with a game on the line in a safe situation. And that finally happened on Wednesday night. And it was Karinczak as the fireman in the seventh inning and then Classe in the eighth and Wicker for the save of the ninth. And Wicker in, uh, after getting roughed up, one day, one game last weekend, coming into a uh, game against the Tigers, where he gave up three earned runs after two walks and three hits. You know, he came in and got the one-two-three save with two strikeouts, uh, two first pitch strikes. Excuse me, I'm reading it wrong. Uh, but one clean inning uh, for the save on Wednesday night. Uh, no strikeouts, no walks, just a one-two-three inning. So he's the guy for now. I think you know, even though his skills are pretty decent. I think he's the third best skilled reliever in that bullpen, but it's not the craziest idea in this day and age to use your higher skilled reliever in the higher level situation. And in most, in, in most bullpens, your third best reliever is 
perfectly acceptable for having to close out a one, two, three, ninth inning with, uh, you know, two or three run lead. So Wicker might be the, uh, the saves leader on this team, even though he's not the, uh, he's by no means the highest skilled pitcher. Actually, uh, Bob Berger made the point that uh, Whitgren's strikeout percentage rate has been good, but not great. I think that's a good way of putting it, and uh, hasn't pitched enough innings to have that much uh, impact on the strikeout total. However, one of the things that a lot of managers, especially old school guys like Terry Francona, do want in a closer is don't walk guys. And uh, certainly uh, that has been a strength for uh, Nick Whitgren as well, a 119 career whip, and it's largely because he just doesn't issue the free passes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it, it's not the you – know, a guy who won't get himself in trouble in a ninth inning where you, you're known, you know you're going to start him off most of the times in the same situation with a clean inning, a guy who starts off with the bases empty, which is different than extra innings, and – He's not going to walk guys. You know that they're going to have to put the ball in play to beat you. Is uh, you know a tougher level for managers at this point. And the other thing, you know, we might have talked about this a couple of weeks ago, PD. But I'm also mindful of watching um, what seems like a bunch of extra inning games in the last week or so. Maybe maybe it was just because the Red Sox had like a 12 inning game, which meant that I watched you know six straight half innings where the runner started on second base. But uh, you know it, it might very well be that. Uh, we're going to see a change in how closers get used because not just closers, but the, the really big strikeout guys, the class A and Karinczak, because they have a better chance of getting out of the jam with the runner on second base, whether as with Karinczak the other night, it's in the seventh inning and the jam is created by the starting pitcher or the middle reliever. And he comes in to put out the fire or it's the, you know, the ghost runner jam and extra innings and, those massive strikeout rates are just a way to just kind of blow your way out of trouble. And Wittgren is not a guy who can handle that, but Wittgren is a guy who, if you ask him to get three outs without getting himself in deep trouble in the ninth inning, more often than not, will probably be able to do that. Again, going back into the mists of time, I'm old enough to remember uh, when not issuing walks was kind of a prerequisite for a closer. I'm sure you remember uh, Dan Quisenberry in Kansas City, who was quite an effective closer. I think he had 250 or so career saves. He walked 1.4 guys per nine innings, which is pretty good, especially by today's standards. But his strikeouts per nine, 3.3. Can you imagine a 3.3 strikeouts per nine guy being a closer in today's game? It's amazing. I, I go down that rabbit hole every now and then. I think I did it once this offseason. And it's amazing. You can go back and, you know, not only the, you know, the 3.3 strikeouts, but you can find pit, you know, pitchers who you thought in your mind were good pitchers who, like, regularly had more walks than strikeouts. It's like, what, 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 planet, what planet was this? It was, it was a completely different game. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I can see if maybe a guy was striking out uh, 19 guys a game, you'd be put up with 19.5 walks or or whatever the case might be. But gosh, uh, another guy who who popped into my mind and a su- submarine-style pitcher was uh, Kenta Calve. Remember him? And uh, he was another uh, very high, uh, very low strikeout rate and a much higher walk rate, almost, uh, I think it was 5-3 to three kind of ratio of strikeouts to walks. And yet... Another guy who piled up a bunch of saves, but as we say, uh, it's not not very likely that anybody like that's going to come out of uh, 
the clouds and deliver a, a lot of saves in modern baseball, I think. And finally, Ray, we haven't covered at BaseballHQ.com in Facts and Flukes this year's miracle story, outfielder Akil Badu in Detroit. How about this guy? He starts the season four for eight. He's got two homers and six RBIs, a grand slam. I think he hit a home run on the first pitch he saw in the big leagues and then later on hit a grand slam, not quite matching uh, the Boston kid who hit a grand slam on a grand slam on his first pitch. Yeah, I'm sure you remember that. I can't remember his name, but uh, oh yeah, I do remember that. It was um, oh his name is on the tip of my tongue, and I'm not going to come up with it. But yeah, I totally know who you're talking about. Uh, Badu, yeah, he was actually the one who hit that grand slam in the 15 to one game off of Randy Dobnak that I alluded to earlier. Um, he's got those two home runs, and I think I've actually seen both of them. Uh, it, kind of interesting, uh, and just in the sense that both of them are were, were like opposite field bombs that both you know carried out out to the opposite field in Detroit, and you know, that's no small feat. It kind of speaks to his power. Uh, kind of like we were talking about with uh, Kai Tom earlier. Earlier though, this is one of those cases where we have to be open to the idea that these guys are somewhat different than maybe we have them from a projections point of view. I may have to revisit the dues projection because this is another case where I added a projection to, for him to our database in like mid March because we didn't have one in our system for him. And I looked at his profile and his last minor league numbers were pretty bad, but he missed most of 2019 with injury and then missed all of 2020 because everybody did. So this is another case where we haven't really seen him play competitively and healthily in like three years now. Um, I, w- I went back and looked at our minor league analyst, and there were a, a, we rated him as a seven D prospect. With you know they talked about interesting bat to ball skills and you know some sneaky power and bat speed, all kind of stuff that we're seeing play out in this first week or two. So this is a case where this weekend I think I have to go back and do a little bit of surgery on this projection and just see what, uh, give it a review and see what, uh, he's, what he merits or how, or how, how I can normalize it, not to overreact to the one week sample size, but just because using a baseline of a 205 batting average from a hundred at bats in double A in early 2019 before he got hurt is not really terribly relevant at this point. Yes, you're right about that. I think so much can change with a player that age, particularly. I think he was he's only 20 now or, or coming 21, which means in 2019 he would have been an 18-year-old kid in, in A-ball, which sounds like pretty young to me. There's certainly older players at that level, so he's been a little bit ahead of the age curve in that direction. So uh, if you if you were looking at your fab bids for this weekend, are you in on Akil Badu? You know, not, not in a break the break the fab bank kind of way, but sure. I, there's not, you know, he's already stealing some playing time from teams like Victor Reyes, Jacoby Jones, Nobar Mazzara are all sort of giving up a couple of at-bats to him. And he's certainly going to play as long as he hits. He's not going to hit, you know, I, I'm pretty confident he's not going to hit two or three home runs a week. Um, <laughs> because that would be like Barry Bonds. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's some power and some speed here and, you know, they're, they're going to leave him in the lineup because why wouldn't they? You know, there's, you know, I guess the concern is if he cools off in the month and the minor league season starts up, they may decide that 
getting him regular at bats in double A or triple A is a better use of uh, a better use of the resource for at least a couple of months and let him shake off some of that rust we're talking about. Um, so I mean, I'm not you know I'm not bidding ten percent of my fab on him or anything, but like I said, I'm open to the idea that uh, you know something has changed here that can uh, you know this is a maturing player who you know can burst on the scene even though literally three weeks ago he was not on our radar screen at all. And somebody thought enough of him to make that Rule 5 pick and and block him into a roster spot in the Detroit organization. I mean, I don't know how much credence we give to Detroit's player decisions because their track record, frankly, isn't that great. But maybe there's some new things going on in their front office. Uh, and before I go, I'm going to give you some hints about that Boston guy who hit the Grand Slam. First of all, the opponents were the Philadelphia Phillies. Does that help? It doesn't help. The pitcher was Joe Blanton. Oh, well, that devalues it, doesn't it? Um, I can pick you. Know, I can, I've seen the re, I've, I've seen the replay so many times. I can picture it. Um, I know he's a left-handed hitter. Um, it wasn't Brock Holt, right? It wasn't Brock Holt. No. What is that guy's name? Oh man, you're driving me crazy. I give up. <laughs> Daniel Nava. It was Daniel Nava, of course. Yeah, yep, it was Daniel Nava. Ray, uh, thanks a million for helping us out. Real interesting today, as always, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time with more news from the American League. All right, I'll do my homework on obscure Red Sox for next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, see if you can find something. Thanks, Ray. <laughs> thanks, Peter. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, we have our regular HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Market Pulse, analyst Brad Coleman looks at the fantasy marketplace with some bulls, some bears, and some pre-market players for your consideration. In the Buyer's Guides column, Stephen Nickrand has some very early observations about starting pitchers, and Doug Dennis advises fantasy managers not to panic at the states of their bullpens. And in the new Arsenal Report column, analyst Tanner Smith looks at more pitchers changing their approaches, including Aaron Nola's new cutter and Corey Kluber's curveball. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, that fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, and injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, you heard a little bit about that today groundbreaking fantasy baseball research and tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, it's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Remember, next Friday is the delayed start of our Friday full editions with Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, also a research contributor at BaseballHQ.com. Hey, if you want, send a question for Jeff to my Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and I'll ask him for his thoughts. Please, no questions about your particular roster or the big trade you're cooking up. 
just general stuff that applies to everybody. That's Jeff Zimmerman coming up next Friday. Time now for our regular commentaries. The Frequent Flyer and My Extra Innings comment are coming up. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at two standout Vanderbilt starters, Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker, is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. With the MLB regular season underway and the start of the minor league season still almost a month down the road, this week's Minor League Minute takes a look at two of the top draft prospects for the upcoming 2021 draft. Fortunately, we don't have to look too far afield to find the two top draft pitching prospects as both Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter play for the top-ranked Vanderbilt Commodores. Both Leiter and Rocker have put up video game numbers to start the college season. Through seven starts, the 21-year-old Rocker is 7-0 with a 0.84 ERA, with 12 walks and 61 strikeouts and 43 innings pitched. Not to be outdone, the 20-year-old Leiter is also 7-0 with a 0.43 ERA, with 16 walks and 71 strikeouts and 42 innings pitched, including a 16K no-hitter versus South Carolina in his SEC debut in a 20-inning hitless streak. Most mock drafts have Leiter and Rocker coming off the board in the top three picks, and it's looking more and more likely that for the first time ever, the top two picks in the draft will be from the same team. While both Rocker and Leiter have been lights out, they're two very different pitchers. At 6'4", 255 pounds, Rocker looks like a tight end on the mound and comes after hitters with elite stuff, highlighted by a plus 93-96 to mile-an-hour fastball that tops out at 99. He backs up the heater with a mid-80s power slider, a cutter, and a changeup that flashes plus at times but needs to be more consistent. With his size and power stuff, Rocker has the look and feel of a front-of-the-rotation starter who is able to hold his stuff deep into games. Leiter, the son of former big leaguer Al Leiter, has a much smaller frame and is listed at 6 feet, 190 pounds, but don't let that fool you, his stuff is every bit as good. His fastball sits at 92-96, to topping out at 97, with a high spin rate that allows it to stay on plane through the zone. He mixes in a 12-6 curveball, slider, and a changeup that are all above average with plus potential. Of the two, Leiter has the cleaner mechanics and the ball just explodes out of his hand, and he does an excellent job of keeping the ball out of the heart of the plate. He gets top marks for his pitchability and works with a quick tempo and an extraordinary long stride. Both pitchers give up their fair share of walks and will need to show improved command in the zone as they move up, but they also have as much upside as any pitcher taken in the last five years of the draft. While it's unlikely that Leiter and Rocker will continue at this pace, they have already done enough to establish themselves as the top two prospects in the draft, and neither will likely spend much time in the minors. Those in long-term keeper format should definitely roster Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker as soon as possible, as both have future ace potential. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, you'll find week two of the excellent daily call-ups reports featuring players like Arizona infielder Andy Young, Minnesota left-hander Brandon Waddell, and a bunch more rising prospects. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at San Francisco left-handed reliever Caleb Baragar is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. What do Trevor Bauer, James Krinchek, Walker Mueller, Liam Hendricks, Cam Bedrosian, and Caleb Baragar have in common? 
They were the only six pitchers in Major League Baseball with greater than three inches of vertical movement, more specifically, three inches in rise above average at a similar velocity and release point, on their four-seam fastballs in 2020, according to MLB's StatCast. Of course, please remember, because of gravity, a rising fastball is just an illusion. All pitches drop upon delivery. Even so, three inches in rise doesn't necessarily sound like a lot of movement. But consider this. If the maximum diameter of a major league bat, by rule, is not more than 2.61 inches, referencing rule 302A, then it would seem that three inches, theoretically, may be just enough, just enough movement to strike out a hitter with a 2.61 inch bat. Makes sense, right? Then again, Major League Baseball changed the core of its Rawlings official baseball this year, and by core, we are referring to the coefficient of restitution. So, by loosening the tension of the ball's windings and providing greater consistency in seam height, Major League Baseball has effectively produced a lighter ball with somewhat greater drag, perhaps resulting in less home runs. Thus, Caleb Berger's 3.1 inches vertical rise on his four-seam fastball, as measured by StatCast in 2020, may be less consistent in 2021. We'll see. That's also why 26-year-old Caleb Berger, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, as a left-handed pitching option with limited experience as an opener, Caleb Berenger could surprise a few hitters and fans in 2021. Speaking of fans, Caleb Berenger traversed three levels of the minors in 2019, going from Class A Advanced all the way to AAA in one season while striking out, or fanning, 135 batters in 141 innings while walking 53. That translates to a command ratio of 2.5 strikeouts to walks in 2019. It also translates to a strikeout rate of 23.2%, roughly comparable to a dominance rate of 9 strikeouts per 9. Not bad. In other words, you could say that we're fans of the fans at Baseball HQ, and we don't just mean the strikeouts. But as we've demonstrated, the strikeouts are rising for 26-year-old San Francisco Giants left-hander Caleb Berger as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I have a Q&A about the man-on-second-to-start extra innings system. The 2020 season had a number of innovations aimed at enhancing the fan experience by shortening the games. Some fans don't like that idea very much. To discuss this important matter, I'm joined on the podcast by Major League Baseball analyst Professor Patrick Von Davitt. Professor, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you. Yeah, imagine it is. Thank you, PD. Professor, why does MLB think it's important to keep the games shorter? Well, it's a maximum of mainstream media marketing models to give the fans less of the product while charging them more. It's the same economic model as the newspapers, which of course are thriving. Geez, Professor, I don't know. I worked in newspapers for quite a while, and my old paper's only about one quarter of its size when I worked there, and circulation is down by almost 90%. 
Yes, exactly. The product isn't as good and the readers are spending much less time with the worst product. You're making my point for me. Shorter games means a better experience, which benefits the customers, and higher prices, which benefits the team owners. In high finance, we call this a win-win. But what about the fans who say the reason the games are so long is actually because of the long commercial breaks between half innings? Well, they're simply looking at the situation from the wrong perspective. The fans at the ballparks have more than two long, glorious minutes every half inning to get up and walk around and meditate on how fortunate they are to be able to attend a major league game. The fans watching on TV, meanwhile, get to watch the TV ads, which are often very entertaining and therefore make a nice contrast with the game itself. Wait, what? Uh... I meant to say that the other way around. The ads are awful, all those local car dealers and personal injury lawyers. The fan is therefore greatly relieved when they can stop thinking about being in workplace accidents or having to buy a used car. Why did Major League Baseball implement this man-on-second idea in the first place? Well, they wanted to cut down on the large number of games going beyond 11 innings. I have to say I didn't realize it was such a big problem. Why, yes, it was. In 2018 and 2019 combined, that's our last two full seasons, 142 games went into the 12th inning and beyond. Imagine that, 142 games. Wow, that is a lot. What is it, like 25% of the games? No, it's a little lower percentage than that. Uh, 10%? A little less than that still. Okay, I give up. What percentage of games went beyond 11 innings? I'm sorry, pardon me? 1.5%. Well, geez, Professor, when you put it that way, it doesn't seem like such a big number. I know, that's why I mumble it. Thank you very much, Professor Patrick Von Davitt, Major League Baseball analyst. It's been a pleasure. Speak for yourself. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 19 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyers commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available, and occasionally I'll invite you to ask questions of our guests. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with our delayed First Friday Full Edition. I'll have an expert guest interview with the great Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, and an occasional research contributor at BaseballHQ.com. Plus, we'll have more of the great stuff from our news and notes editions, National and American League Player News with Nick and Ray, Rob Gordon's Minor League Minute, Alex Becky's Frequent Flyer, and my extra innings comment. But it's all Jeff Zimmerman coming up Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next week, and so long. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.